But it's good to see you uh, this evening, um, <clears throat> and uh, grateful uh, to spend some time together in God's Word. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 35 through 37, just as you heard read. Uh, we <clears throat> have one more week in the Gospel of Mark, in this uh, section of the Gospel of Mark, uh, before we push pause um, and pick it back up in the new year. Uh, but as we enter the Christmas and Advent season, uh, we actually are going to be walking through uh, the book of Ruth, uh, talking about the story behind Christmas um, <clears throat> and, and looking at the longing of a Redeemer uh, in the life of Israel during the time of Ruth and how it points us forward to Jesus' day. Um, and on Christmas Eve, which will be a Sunday uh, this year, uh, we'll look at the story of Christmas from Matthew chapter 1. And so really excited as we enter in uh, to uh, the Christmas season. Uh, for all of those who don't see the Christmas season starting until after Thanksgiving, uh, we'll pray for you. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I guess to be fair, uh, my Christmas series doesn't start until after Thanksgiving. So uh, a little bit uh, of something there for for everyone. Uh, but today our, uh, our passage is <clears throat> uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Um, <clears throat> this is perhaps the shortest passage I've ever preached on. Um, <clears throat> I can't promise that it'll be the shortest sermon, but I do hope uh, that uh, it, uh, <clears throat> my, my sermon reflects the text. Uh, it's a short passage with a significant truth. Um, and to, to get at the truth of this passage... Uh, I just want to simply ask you this question. Is Jesus really God? It's maybe an unsettling question to think about uh, if you're a committed follower of Christ. It may be the very question you have thought about uh, before coming to faith in Christ, or you may be here today, not yet a committed follower of Christ, asking this very question. Uh, it's a fair question. Uh, it's one that we all should ask and we all should uh, reflect on. When we read the Gospels, did, did Jesus ever say as much that he was indeed God. Uh, some say Jesus never taught uh, that he was God, uh, but that it was his disciples uh, later on uh, who came along and, and said that, uh, that Jesus uh, was, was God, uh, that they uh, took what he said and uh, went back and uh, kind of with uh, fond memories uh, of Jesus' teaching, uh, taught that he said that he was God, but the truth was he never actually taught that himself. Uh, in fact, there are a number of different authors, one in particular uh, named Bart Ehrman, who teaches at the University of North Carolina, who argues uh, that, that Jesus never taught that he was God. It was his disciples who taught this after the fact. And uh, in fact, of all the Gospels, the Gospel of John is probably the Gospel that's the most explicit about this uh, topic. Uh, and, and so uh, Ehrman argues that, uh, that John gives us a, a theological interpretation of Jesus, what his believers after the fact said, but an accurate historical reflection of what Jesus said and did can be found only in, in Matthew and Mark, uh, and less so in Luke based upon their determination of which passages actually reflect the true words of Jesus and which passages don't reflect the true words of Jesus. So um, <clears throat> I'm being somewhat facetious, but their point stands that Jesus didn't teach that he was God. His followers after the fact taught that he was God. Should we be comfortable with that teaching? Uh, the, <clears throat> the short answer is no. Uh, I want to propose to you today to believe that Jesus is anything less than God is, is to not be a follower of Christ. And in fact, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, it's not silent on this point. It's not just that in the Gospel of John that we find uh, these assertions, these statements, but 
uh, it's found in the Gospel of Mark. And the truth of the matter is that our passage today isn't the first time uh, that Jesus has said and done things which indicate that he is indeed God. Uh, but our passage today, though short, is provocatively clear on this point. Um, and it's the truth that Jesus is Lord. You see, uh, throughout Mark chapter 11 through 13, Jesus has been uh, confronted with various questions from the religious leaders of the day. Some uh, seemingly disingenuous, others seemingly genuine. Uh, but the point is, Jesus is approached with questions from others. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, after a day of questions comes the question of the day, and the question of the day falls to Jesus to ask, not for him to be asked about. Uh, and so the question of the day is really the point of the passage, and what comes from that question is this assertion, this simple and profound assertion, Jesus is Lord. That statement is the foundation of Christianity. To understand and to believe that Jesus is Lord is the bedrock of our confession as followers of Christ. It's the clear, uh, unwavering testimony not only of the scriptures but of the church from the time of Christ until today. To not believe that Jesus is Lord is to not be a Christian, but to confess that Jesus is Lord is a confession that not only we believe but that we live under his lordship. Um, and so uh, I want us to look at this passage and see how it helps us to arrive at this conclusion through the question that Jesus asked. And the first uh, thing that I want us to see is a, a common conviction. And that common conviction is that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Uh, Jesus has been asked all these questions, and here at the end of the day, it says in the temple, uh, most likely Jesus' other teaching was also in the temple. It probably took place in the, in the court of the Gentiles, that he had the widest audience, and as he was teaching there, um, and he's uh, perhaps concluding his day teaching in the temple, and he says, how can the scribes say that Christ, the Messiah, is another term for Messiah, is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So this common conviction of the day is that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And, and when Jesus asked the question, How can the scribes say that, uh, that the Christ, that the Messiah is the son of David, he's not asking it to make them question the assertion that, that the Messiah is actually from the line of David. That was the common conviction, that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Uh, he's talking to the scribes, and sometimes we, we use the word scribes, and uh, we may not think about what that means. The scribes are basically like the Bible nerds uh, of uh, of the first century. They're the ones who knew the law. Uh, they not only knew the law, but they were responsible for passing on uh, the law. So he's, he's talking uh, to, uh, to the Bible nerds, and he's giving them a Bible question. Uh, he, he's taking them to, to Psalm 110 and quotes from Psalm 110, and he says, hey, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I, I want to I ask you something to, to get you to think about something. You know Psalm 110? And they all would have been like, yeah, yeah. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And, and then Jesus would say, well, how can, how can David say that the, the Christ is the son of David? Uh, and so Psalm 110 doesn't mention the Christ, but it was known and taught during this time that uh, Psalm 110 uh, would be a reference uh, to, to the Messiah. Uh, in fact, Psalm 110 
is perhaps, or not perhaps, it is the disciples' favorite Old Testament text. Of all the Old Testament passages referenced in the New Testament, Psalm 110 is referenced more than any other passage. It is either quoted or alluded or referenced in some capacity 33 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's uh, by far uh, the most frequently referenced, either cited or alluded to reference in the New Testament. And it was originally a, a coronation hymn uh, that, that would have been read upon the installation of any new king in Israel or Judah. Uh, it was written by, by King David, and it, and it references uh, the, the fact that God has entrusted to the king the responsibility to, to rule and to reign over Israel. However, in reading uh, Psalm 110 at the inauguration of the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, inevitably as Israel went into exile to Assyria and then Judah went into exile to Babylon and there was no king sitting on the throne of David, there was a longing for a return uh, for a, a king from the line of David who would come and the expectation was that the Messiah, this Messiah would come and restore the rule of David, the, the, the rule of God over Israel. And we, we see this, uh, this expectation of a, of a king, but also more than a king all throughout the Old Testament. It's like little, little glimpses of it that, that give us a taste of what's to come, but it, it takes a while for it to develop and for it to come into full bloom in the New Testament where we see that, that this, these promises are actually talking about Jesus, that he is the, the one that was promised. And this um, common conviction that the Messiah would come from the line of David uh, can be traced in a few different passages. I just want to read a few to you. Uh, just jot these down. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve through thirteen. Second Samuel seven is an important passage in the Old Testament because it's when God makes a covenant with David. Uh, a covenant uh, that he makes with David that uh, really shapes the rest of the Old Testament. The expectation that God has made this promise to David to establish a kingdom with a descendant of David who will sit on the throne forever. And for him to rule and reign. And through David's descendants, uh, there's going to be a temple that's built for Israel. And uh, a king who's going to reign and rule uh, for all time. And, uh, and we see this expectation. It says this in 2 Samuel seven twelve: I will raise up your offspring after you, God tells David. Who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I, I told you earlier that I'm already in the Christmas spirit. I've listened uh, here recently. I don't know why, but uh, I've decided to just turn on the radio in the car. I don't know if you've done that recently. Uh, we're pretty much a, a regular Spotify listening family. And so you, you get in the car, you plug in Spotify before you do anything else, right? Um, and, but I've decided uh, to go, go kind of analog uh, back in the day and, and listen to the radio. And uh, I've been listening... Uh, to, uh, to a few different stations, and uh, there have been Christmas songs on. Uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, and it was starting to feel like Christmas on Halloween night. You remember when the snow fell, the f snow flurry? Uh, you started to kind of get the vibe and the feel of Christmas is here. Well, here's my, my ode to Christmas before Thanksgiving. Isaiah chapter 9, 
Uh, verses 6 through 7, the common conviction that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And it says to us in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth. And it says this, the zeal of the Lord will do this. And so it's not just in the Old Testament that we have this expectation of this promised king from the line of David who's going to come and, and establish God's reign, establish God's rule. That was in 2 Samuel 7 before the kingdom was divided and carried away. Both of them carried away in exile. In Isaiah 9, it's telling us on the other side of exile, there's this king who's coming. He's going to be born as a child, miraculously, according to Isaiah 9 and 7. And this king is going to establish the throne of David. Well, Mark... 10 tells us when uh, Jesus was walking by on the way to Jerusalem, there's a blind man on the side of the road named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus cries out as Jesus passes by, perhaps hearing word that Jesus was nearby. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The, the common conviction is that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And the Gospel of Mark has already indicated to us, and Jesus is already showing us that he is the Messiah. That He is the promised Messiah. And Psalm 110 takes us to the heart of this because the expectation of the Messiah ruling and reigning, sitting at the right hand of God the Father and putting the enemies of God under His feet is what the Messiah will do. And Jesus here quotes it and asks, how can the Messiah also be the son of David? Not to call into question that the Messiah will be from the line of David, but to provoke the question is the Messiah more than merely just from the line of David? But before we get to that critical distinction in just a moment, I, I think what's important as we look at Psalm 110 is also to reference the uh, expectation and the longing of Israel at this time. The expectation and the longing of Israel is that they, they did want a king who would come. They did want that promised Messiah who would deliver them from the hand of the Romans. They wanted to see Israel's enemies defeated. They wanted to see a Davidic throne reestablished. This was uh, the longing of the hearts of the people of Israel. It's why when Mary gets word of what God is doing through the miraculous birth of Jesus, it says that she treasured these things up in her heart. As a faithful Jew, her and Joseph, as they went to, uh, went to, to Bethlehem and they were reflecting on these promises, their hearts were full of expectation of what God was doing. The longing of, of Israel at this time was indeed for a Messiah to come. However, that, that longing was also very much wrapped up in a nationalistic, political kind of vision that the Messiah would come and defeat Rome and literally establish uh, a, a Jewish kingdom, the kingdom of Israel with the throne of David, reuniting the divided kingdoms of Israel and reestablishing God's rule in Israel. And this was a constant source of tension throughout Jesus' ministry, of people understanding His claims that He was the Messiah, and yet wrestling with the, uh, the disconnect between Him being the Messiah and Him not being the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. And so here in our passage, we have this common conviction that the Messiah is from the line of David. And Jesus is clear that He is indeed that Messiah. However, 
there's something more to Jesus than just being the son of David or from the line of David. And that's our second point. And it's a critical distinction for us to understand in our passage. And the critical distinction is that the Messiah is more than just the son of David. And it's this question that leads us to come to a conclusion of what Jesus means by this, by this question. And we saw Psalm 110, which he quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus isn't questioning, as I said, that the Messiah will be from the line of David. Instead, he's asserting that the Messiah is more than the son of David. I believe he's asserting that the Messiah is the Lord. And it says, <clears throat> there's something important for us to, to understand here. Uh, when, it, when we look in Psalm 110, we're going to unpack this in a minute. It says, the Lord, uh, in, Psalm, in Psalm 110, the word that's used there is the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Uh, it's the, the personal name of God. In, in most translations, uh, when you see the name Yahweh in the Old Testament, it's in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Sometimes the L is big, and then the, the O-R-D is a little bit smaller, but they're all capitalized. That's an indication that the translation is translating the, 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 the name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Other times when we see the word Lord uh, with the first L capitalized, but the O-R-D uh, lowercase, it's, it's a, a, use, a reference to the use of the, uh, of the noun Adonai, which means master or Lord. Uh, and and the, the term Adonai could be used uh, in either reference to an earthly ruler, but also in reference to God as the sovereign ruler over all things. In fact, these two terms, uh, even though Lord Adonai could be used in a reference to a, king, uh, a ruler or a king, um, out of reverence for God, when the, when the term Yahweh was, was occurred in the Old Testament text, if it was being read in a synagogue or, or being read out loud, the name that Israel, Israelites would use for Yahweh, rather than saying the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, they would say Adonai uh, in, uh, in place of Yahweh. So these two terms are used together, and I'll unpack the significance of that in a minute, but what Jesus is asserting is that the Messiah, who's from the line of David, is more than a Messiah, that the Messiah is Lord. And more specifically, he's asserting that he is the Messiah who is the Lord. And this is our confession. Jesus is Lord. He is both the promised Davidic Messiah, the, the King who is coming, and He is Lord over all, Lord of Lords, the eternal God who took on flesh in the fullness of time. This is the core teaching of Christianity, that Jesus is Lord. A statement that He is indeed the fulfillment of the long-awaited promises of God for a Messiah, but the Messiah is more than just an earthly king from the line of David. He is God Himself in the flesh. He is Lord of Lords. And so, Jesus uses Psalm 110 to make this point. He's saying... Uh, to these Bible nerds, hey, think about this. Have you, you remember Psalm 110? Remember what it says. It says that Yahweh said to my Lord. This is David speaking. How could David refer to one of his sons as my Lord? That would be an unusual occurrence that a father would say to his son and call him Lord. It would never be that way. Uh, it would always be the opposite. But more importantly, he's saying, uh, is the reference here... When, when David speaks to my Lord, 
I think Jesus is indicating that by the Holy Spirit, David spoke of someone greater than merely David's offspring. He's not just merely talking about a physical offspring that's going to come from his lineage. Instead, he was speaking of one who was greater than merely a son of David, but speaking of one who would be the son of God, God himself. It's clear throughout the Old Testament that this assertion is not just clear as day, right? Otherwise, when Jesus showed up, everybody would be like, great, son of David, son of God, let's worship, you know, party on. It's clear that there was a sense of, of mystery. And I think this is why Jesus points this out. He's saying to them, maybe don't get so comfortable in what you think about me or about the Messiah. Maybe look at the scriptures a little further and, and ask yourself, what did, what did that mean? What would David have been talking about when he called the Messiah who was to come, the Davidic king who was to come, my Lord? If he was talking about his son, surely he would have just said, my, my descendant after me. But did he mean something more than, than just a son from the line of David? What is this reference to my Lord? And I think this is the point, that Jesus is provoking them to consider that the Messiah isn't just a Davidic king who's coming, but he's, that, he's, he's the Lord himself who is coming. He is the sovereign king over all. God himself is coming. And we see this throughout the scriptures. The, the use of Yahweh and Adonai are uh, all over the Old Testament scriptures. And I just want to uh, show you how often these two terms were used. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, it says, <clears throat> uh, uh, a Davidic psalm that, that uses the term Adonai for Lord. It says, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This is a psalm that's talking about how God has uh, created man and put them over uh, the, the rest of the creation. And he's, he's saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you are Lord, our Lord, majestic is your name. He's, he's using the term Adonai to reference God. Psalm 16, uh, 8, verse 11 says that Yahweh is Lord. It says, I have set the Lord, David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Uh, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In just a moment, we're going to see this passage quoted again in Acts chapter 2. And the same question that Jesus asked of Psalm 110, how can David say to, um, to uh, his own son that he will be my Lord? How can David say in Psalm 16, 8, that the Holy One will see no corruption? In fact, we're going to see that the, the disciples understood from the Old Testament text that this is not merely speaking uh, just of David's own devotion to, to Yahweh, but it's referencing that God himself is going to come and his soul will not see corruption. It will not be abandoned to Sheol, a reference to Jesus' own death and resurrection. And then consider Isaiah 45. Uh, 18, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess allegiance to Yahweh as Lord. It says, thus says the Lord who created the heavens. This is verse 18. He is God. He formed the earth and he made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Skip down to verse 22 of Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return 
To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come, to, to him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, <clears throat> these references uh, to, to God as Adonai or as Yahweh are then picked up in the New Testament and used in reference to Jesus himself. That Jesus is Lord. Consider Acts chapter 22. As Jesus uh, is proclaimed by Peter at Pentecost. It says this. This passage is a little bit longer. Acts chapter 2 uh, verses 22 through 36. But, but my desire to, to, to read this uh, is because uh, it's instructive for us that, that Jesus is constantly returning to the Old Testament scriptures to explain who he is. And so, if you've ever wrestled with like understanding who Jesus is, if you've ever wrestled with what the Bible teaches about some topic, if you're ever struggling with, I know I, I confess that we believe this, but how does that square with, like, go to the Scriptures. Allow the Scriptures to, to guide you and direct you continually when Jesus is confronted with questions, even throughout this section. We have seen how Jesus returns to the Scriptures as the source of His answer. As He preaches... Uh, the, the, the gospel, uh, the first proclamation of the gospel following the, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Before this large audience at Pentecost, he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested, excuse me, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst and that you yourselves know this is Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now notice the logic. Four, because David said concerning the Messiah, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make, full of glad make me full of gladness with your presence. That's Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11. He said, David, seeing that the Lord would not be held by death, what would be resurrected is, is what Psalm 16, 8, 11 is pointing us forward to. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried, and his tomb with, with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of this we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out the Spirit on us that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And notice once more, David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <clears throat> when we look at Acts chapter 2, we see David saying to us, that the Old Testament promises of what God would do for uh, the, the coming son of David, the coming uh, promised one from the line of David, uh, Peter is saying, this is Jesus. 
Jesus is Christ, the promised Messiah. Jesus is Lord. When, when it says in Psalm 16 um, that the Lord is always before me, Yahweh is always before me, who is that but, but Jesus, uh, Peter is saying in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, David didn't go up and sit at the right hand of God until God made all of his enemies a footstool. That's God himself that is going to sit at the right hand of the Father. That, that it will be Jesus who will sit at the right hand of the Father until he makes all of his enemies a footstool. And then uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 11, <clears throat> uh, it quotes Isaiah 45. You remember Isaiah 45? It says... <clears throat> um, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. To me, to Yahweh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Notice what it says in, in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Yahweh, no, at the name of Jesus who has eternally existed in the form of Yahweh, who shares equal divine status with Yahweh. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the promised Messiah, and Jesus is divine Lord. He is both Messiah and Lord, as Peter said. He did not become God once He came in the flesh. He was God who came in the flesh. That's the testimony of the Bible, that Jesus is Lord. Simple statement, filled with such rich fulfillment of the Scriptures, with such a high claim to who Jesus is, and a and a very provoking claim that demands a response. When I asked at the beginning, is Jesus really God? I think the assertion of what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 2 is that, that the Messiah is the Lord in equal status with Yahweh, the, uh, the God the Father revealed in the Old Testament at the burning bush in Exodus 3 when God says that I am who I am, the same God. Um, he's distinct in person and shares the same status. That Jesus is God. He is the Lord. I think that's what Jesus is leading them to see. However, uh, I, I want to just kind of step back and kind of give a helpful tool for uh, explaining how Jesus is God. Because uh, though there are clear scriptures that we can look at throughout the Gospel of Mark, one of my favorites is Mark chapter 2. After Jesus forgives uh, the man who's brought to him as paralytic, the man's brought to him as paralytic, he can't walk, and Jesus sees him, and he comes up to him. But rather than being like, hey, you can't walk, let me help you walk, he says to the man who can't walk, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, you've got to be nuts to say that if somebody's brought to you. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I need some money, and you said your sins are forgiven, what would they say to you? They would say, you're out of your mind, unless you sinned against them. How could this man who's a paralyzed man, how could he sin? He wasn't paralyzed because he sinned against Jesus, but he was a sinner, and he needed forgiveness. 
And once Jesus forgave him, he, of course, he, he heals him. And he says, I'm going to do the harder thing in your eyes so that you'll believe the bigger truth. I'm going to make the man walk so that you'll believe I have authority to forgive sins. And everybody said, only God can forgive sins. What was the conclusion that Jesus wanted them to draw? That he himself was God. And you think to yourself, as we sit in this room tonight, we go, how, how could that be? It also says, after Jesus taught, and it says this in this passage, the great throng of people heard him gladly. People, no doubt, listened to Jesus and thought to themselves, like, is he saying what I think he's saying? I don't know if you've ever had that experience as you read the Bible. Like, is this saying what I think it's saying? Could it be that Jesus really is God, that God came in the flesh? Could, could this actually be? I think that's what, that's what Mary was thinking. That's what Zechariah, when he had the promise about John the Baptist, he was like, could, it, could God really do this as a forerunner to the Messiah? I don't know that it could be. And he doubted. And he didn't talk until John was born. All throughout the scriptures, we see time and time again, as people are presented the truth about who Jesus is, there's both a, a sense of wonder and awe, coupled with belief and rejection. People are continually doing that. Wonder and awe. Some saying, I see and I believe. My Lord, my God. I confess. And then others say, I don't know. I don't know if that could be. I don't know if that could be the case. Here's a helpful tool. Um, <clears throat> hands down. One of the most helpful ways. Uh, hands is the acronym. Um, <clears throat> some of you didn't get that joke, but that's okay. Uh, hands. Uh, just trying to help you out here. All right. Five ways to help us understand how the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Jesus shares the honor due only to God. Would people fall down and worship Jesus? He doesn't say, no, 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 not appropriate. Both before his death and resurrection and after his death and resurrection, he receives worship from others. He's worthy of the honor due only to God. He shares the attributes of God. I mentioned um, <clears throat> uh, throughout, uh, throughout Jesus' teaching, people reference his authority. We see Jesus' omniscience, that he knows the hearts of people. Uh, we see his, his power, that he has the power to, to heal and, and forgive sins. Uh, we, we see his, uh, the, the character uh, of God, the attributes of God uh, displayed in the life of Jesus. And he shares the attributes that God has. The names ascribed to God in the Old Testament are given to Jesus in the New Testament. We saw this with Yahweh and Adonai. Passages that refer to God as Yahweh and Adonai in the Old Testament are used in reference to Jesus. And Paul tells us, we saw in Philippians chapter 2, that he's Lord of lords and King of kings, worthy of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that he is Lord. These are the names that are ascribed only to God. And then he does the deeds that only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. Only the one who created all things could say to the wind and to the storm, be still, and it would be still. Only God, who is the giver of life, can say to one who is dead, get up when they've been dead and give life to those who are dead. He does the things that only God can do. And then ultimately, number five, he's seated on the throne of God. This is why Psalm 110 is used so often. One of the ways in which it's, when it's not quoted fully, it's alluded to. When you see that it says of Jesus that he will sit at the right hand of God, it's, uh, it's connecting back to Psalm 110, that he is seated on the throne of God. So if Jesus 
is given the worship that only God is, is due, has the attributes that only God can have, if he shares the, uh, the names that are given to God and does the deeds that people would only expect God to do, and we are told that he sits on the throne of God, which means he has the authority of God to rule over all things, including my life and your life. The only conclusion is that he's a liar or he's Lord. He's out of his mind. Or he's the sovereign, creator, eternal God, fully God, fully man, promised Messiah, Lord of lords, that is worthy of our worship. That's the conclusion that the scriptures are constantly pushing us to. But, I want you to understand, this confession should be one that we hold dear, and that we understand, because there is a world full of people who have a different view of Jesus. Just consider an atheistic or an agnostic view of Jesus. Obviously, for an atheist who does not believe in God, Jesus would not be God. For an agnostic, they would say that he may be God. I am not certain, but perhaps he is a good teacher that was misunderstood. Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet, a prized and beloved prophet, but not God in the flesh. And some of the things that the Bible says he teaches, he didn't teach, they would say. Hinduism would say that Jesus may be a God, but not the only God, the one true God over all. Buddhism, being a non-theistic faith system, would say that Jesus is at best an inspiring teacher, whose principles we should consider. Judaism today would teach that Jesus is not God, nor was he the Messiah. He was certainly the most influential Jew to ever lived, and in the end he was a, a reformer and teacher in the Jewish tradition. No doubt that Jesus lived and taught as a, as a Jew and as a rabbi, but the claim that he was God and he was the Messiah would be rejected by Orthodox Judaism today. Consider others that, uh, that maybe are a little bit more nuanced and confront us a little bit more regularly, like literally at your door. Uh, consider Mormonism, which teaches that Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of the Heavenly Father and the Heavenly Mother. And Jesus was first made... And then he progressed and, and even came up with a plan of redemption that was better than Lucifer, uh, his brother. And uh, he uh, came and was born miraculously and through his life progressed to godhood. And he is now united in purpose and power with the Heavenly Father, though not equal in status with God the Father. Mormonism would teach that Jesus was born miraculously and became a god, but is not the eternal God who took on flesh. And consider Jehovah Witnesses. <clears throat> who you see regularly around and whose material circulates around and often knock at your door as well, they would say that Jehovah, uh, that, that Yahweh, <clears throat> there are witnesses to him, which Yahweh, Jehovah, is the alliteration of Yahweh, who just spelled out differently with the, uh, with the vowels added into, into how we would transliterate it today. Uh, they would say that Jesus was created by Yahweh, by Jehovah, as the archangel Michael before the physical world existed and is a lesser, and though he is a lesser God, but still a mighty God nonetheless. In fact, they would say, uh, this is directly from their website, we do not worship Jesus because we do not believe he is almighty God. To say Jesus is Lord is a confession of faith in the biblical view of who Jesus is. It's a confession of Jesus' divinity and his humanity. It's a confession that he has been eternally God and he will be eternally God. 
A confession that he took on flesh and lived among us and that he died in our place and for our sin. And he did not die in our place and for our sin in the process of becoming a God, but as the one true God. The miracle of the cross and the resurrection is that we were so sinful that God himself had to come and die in our place and for our sin and rise from the dead. And the beauty of the gospel is that God himself was willing to come in our place and die on the cross and rise from the dead. Our view of Jesus is essential to our confession of our faith. Jesus is Lord. All of these views, I say not to dog on one view or the other, but to equip us to understand our confession as well as to equip us to share our confession. To understand. I think sometimes, especially as it relates to Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses, sometimes it can be overwhelming because so much of the language is similar but the core conviction about who Jesus is is different. And so it helps us to understand a, a world competing with competing views about Jesus when we confess Jesus is Lord, uh, what we mean by it. And I think this is, this is where we, we, we have to come to. To say that Jesus is Lord is not merely an academic exercise. It's not merely an exercise of critiquing other people's views of Jesus. But at the end of the day, to confess Jesus as Lord demands a personal response. Do you believe in Jesus? Uh, I'm not talking theoretically, I'm talking about you. Do you believe in Jesus? Notice I did not ask you, did you grow up in church and have a uh, positive view of Jesus? I'm not asking you if you've read a book about Jesus and are inclined to like Jesus. I'm asking you if you believe that he's Lord. Do you accept him merely as an example or as your authority? That's, that's the difference between whether or not you uh, are interested in Jesus and, and whether or not you believe in Jesus as Lord. Do you like his teaching, perhaps say on love, but recoil at his teaching, say, on, on holiness and sexual purity? That's the difference between being interested in Jesus and believing in Jesus as Lord. Are you intrigued by Jesus or are you ready to, to be devoted to Jesus? Are you curious about his teachings or have you come to believe he is who he says he is? I want you to know that that journey isn't always a straight line from here to there. It's often filled with lots of conversation and interaction with another believer, talking about, sharing what you're thinking, reading the scriptures. If you're here today and you don't know that you believe in Jesus, I want you to know you're in a good place where you can ask these questions. You can explore these things from the scriptures. But I do want to encourage you today, if you're here and you don't yet know, if you have a personal a relationship with Jesus, if you haven't responded uh, by, by saying, I not only know that you are Lord, that you are who you said you are, but I trust in you. I give my life to you. The Bible would tell us that if you put your trust in Jesus, in fact, in the book of Romans, Paul writes to a group of believers there and he, he puts it this way. This core confession of our faith in Jesus in Romans chapter 10, it says in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation comes to the one who says, I know I'm a sinner, but I trust that Jesus is enough to save me. That Jesus is Lord, he's God in the flesh who came to die in my place and to rise from the dead. And anyone who turns from their sin and puts their trust in Him, Romans 10.13 says, they will not be put to shame. Jesus loves you because He made you. 
And he made you to know, to know him, to have a relationship with him. Sin separates us from God, but God doesn't leave us in our sin. Jesus comes to rescue us through his death and resurrection. And he offers the invitation of faith to believe in him, to trust in him. If you don't know him, I'm going to be down here after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. To confess Jesus as Lord requires a personal response. As a believer and as a church, I, I want to say to us, we're not exempt from this claim. As a, as a Christian, you've confessed that Jesus is Lord. I know you've made this confession that Jesus is Lord. This is the foundation of what we just saying. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you, God. My question to us, as well as my question to myself this week, is do I live at my life reflecting that Jesus is Lord? Do I acknowledge Jesus in some areas of my life, but not give him total claim over every area of my life? And a lot of times this isn't the, the conscious decision we make. It's just functionally how we operate. We get comfortable with some things in our life, and we don't want Jesus to go meddling over there, right? You remember Scooby-Doo? If it wasn't for those meddling kids, right, I would have got away with it. There's Jesus meddling in my business. We get, we get uncomfortable sometimes and we, we put some limits on Jesus, right? Another question is, are you submitting your thoughts and your, your questions, your struggles to, to Jesus? Your struggles, your questions, all those things aren't a problem. It's what you do with them. Do you bring them to, to Him? Do you bring them to His Word? Jesus' as Lord demands a personal response. Let me leave you with these final thoughts about what it means for us to confess Jesus as Lord. I love how this is summed up in this quote by Hudson Taylor, a missionary. He said, Christ is either Lord of all, or He is not Lord at all. Just as I said, are we living our lives reflecting that Jesus is Lord? If He's Lord, then it means He's Lord over everything. Or if we're not allowing Him to have parts of our life, He's really not Lord at all. We're Lord. Consider these, these, these truths. We find comfort in confessing Jesus as Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say He's sovereign over everything. That's why, that's why we find comfort in singing, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, I, I give you everything. If you're sovereign, Lord, what's going on in my life feels like chaos. And if everything around me is chaos, where do I look to, to the one who's in control? That's the, the belief that Jesus is Lord is literally the comfort of the Christian through every trial, through every struggle, that Jesus is Lord. Perhaps sometimes in our struggle with sin or our trials that we walk through, maybe we just need to hold on a little bit more tightly to the truth. You're Lord. Jesus is Lord. And maybe we need to confess, Lord, I believe that, but help me believe it more. That our comfort is found in knowing that Jesus is Lord, that He's sovereign, that He is sitting at the right hand of God and He is ruling over all things. We're also confronted in confessing Jesus as Lord. We're confronted in confessing Jesus as Lord because it means that He has to claim, He has to call all the shots in our life, not just some of the shots. And maybe we need to slow down enough to say, God, have your way in me. Just this week before a conversation I was having, I was just reminded of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 20, 24. Lord, search me and know me. Reveal to me if there's any offensive way in me. How, how much more maybe should we stop and just pray, God, confront me. 
Help me see my sin. Maybe we don't even see where we're being hard-hearted or, or where we're being selfish or where we're being prideful. But also, we may see the sin, but we just may not want to deal with it. And when we confess Jesus as Lord, we're saying, Lord, all of it, all of it's yours. It confronts us to claim that Jesus is Lord. But we also grow in courage in confessing Jesus as Lord. You see, because if Jesus is the Lord, that it means He's worthy of our lives and we're willing to devote ourselves to Him. And we have the courage to know that we can give ourselves to Him and that He is more than worthy and more than sufficient to meet us as we do. He is either Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. As Noah comes, I want to just lead us into a brief time of prayer. I want you to close your, close your eyes if you could and turn your focus to the Lord.